We're going to kick off episode 632 of the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear with the song Wake the Dead. It's from the band The Dread Tones. It's from their album The Dead Frequency that came out earlier this year. You can find them at thedreadtones.bandcamp.com or follow the link in the show notes over at monsterkidradio.net. That is the website for the podcast you're listening to right now. It's Monster Kid Radio. And I'm your host, writer, producer, Monster Kid, and fan of all things classic horror, Derek M. Cook. Welcome to the show. Happy to have you here. This week, we are doing something a little bit different. We did not watch a classic horror movie. No, I actually went to see a modern horror movie that is kind of related to the classic horror movies that I love and the classic horror novels and stories that I love. And I didn't do it alone. I brought my wife Beth with me to go see The Last Voyage of the Demeter. This movie, well, it created a conversation that lasted over an hour between Beth and I. Now, I did some editing and all that. It doesn't run quite that long, although it's pretty close in this episode. So you're going to hear that here in a little bit. But first, we of course have Kenny's look at Famous Monsters of Filmland and Mark Matsky's Beta Council Review. So that's going to be coming up here shortly as well. Now, at the end of the episode, you're going to hear this song, Wake the Dead, in its entirety, so stay tuned for that. Plus, I have an apology that I need to make, and that's going to happen at the end of this episode. To get to the end, though, we got to get through the middle, and to get to the middle, we got to get through the beginning, so let's go ahead and kick things off right now. Dracula has risen from the grave. Boy, does he give a hickey. Crept into a nightmare of evil with, guess what happened to Count Dracula? He's back from the grave to rule the satanic occult-ridden world of today's mind-blown youth. <laughs> See it with someone you trust. Guess what happened to Count Dracula will trip you into a blood-smeared torture chamber and you'll never get out. My business for eternity to do whatever I wish. Don't see it alone. See it with someone you trust. <laughs> You'll plunge into a nightmare of evil, thrills, chills, horror, terror, shock, panic, and violence, climaxing in an orgy of blood and death. <laughs> see it with someone you trust. Guess what happened to Count Dracula is a supreme example of a top-notch motion picture thriller filmed in magnificent blood-dripping color. A shocker with unparalleled violence erupting from the screen to horrify and paralyze you. Guess what happened to Count Dracula will blow your mind. This is the picture that nightmares are made of. If you dare see it, see it with someone you trust. Don't miss it. Coming soon. Guess what happened to Count Dracula. Rated GP. All ages admitted. Parental guidance. At this lonely crossroad in the Carpathian Mountains... Four travelers find themselves abandoned at nightfall by a local coach driver who was afraid to go any further. There's no driver. A coach with horses that knew the way. A table laid for four. Was this kindly hospitality? Isn't your master joining us for dinner? No, sir. I'm afraid not. Is he indisposed? He's dead. Why should a dead man be interested in entertaining guests? Dracula, Prince of Darkness, King of the Vampires. For ten years, his mortal remains were cherished by his faithful servant, awaiting the opportunity... 
and a victim to provide the life force for the reincarnation of Dracula. Live from the Land of Light in Nebula M78, home of the mighty Ultra Heroes, it's Monster Kid Radio's Beta Capsule Review. Return of Ultraman, Episode 25, Leaving My Home Planet Earth. Original air date, September 24th, 1971. When an apartment building under construction is destroyed by an earthquake, things take a bizarre twist, with all the concrete fragments flying off into space. Monster Attack Team determines the fragments are being drawn by the gravitational pull of planet Zagoras. The rock that made the cement is traced to Aino Village, where a fire-breathing monster appears. MAT convenes a meeting with the residents of Aino, informing them their village is built on top of a meteorite from Zagoras, and that eventually it will be pulled up into space. Captain Ibaki hypothesizes that the kaiju was mutated by the radioactive properties of the meteorite. Aino Village is evacuated just as the gravity from Zagoras intensifies, while at the same time, Minami and Go chase down a stolen MAT gun. When the monster reappears, the rest of Monster Attack Team takes to the skies to stop its advance, as Go and Minami are joined in the fight by an unlikely ally. Leaving My Home Planet Earth excels by establishing a parallel between Minami and youngster Rokusuke, a native of Aino Village who is routinely bullied by his peers. When Rokusuke decides to fight the monster, Minami is reminded of his younger self, and when the two of them rush into battle together, it offers both an emotionally resonant moment and some major wish fulfillment, as a regular kid gets to fight alongside Monster Attack Team. The actor who played Minami, Shunsuke Ikeda, also starred in 1973's Kikaider Zero One as Ichiro, a heroic android. The show became huge in Hawaii, and Ikeda felt such a strong connection to the 50th state that upon his death in 2010, his ashes were scattered off Diamond Head on what would have been his 70th birthday. For Monster Kid Radio's Beta Capsule Review, this is Mark Mansky reporting. It's his night to howl. Dracula's dog, the meanest vampire of them all, has a four-legged friend and he's out for blood. Crown International Pictures presents Dracula's dog. Whoops, there he goes again. There's more to the legend than meets the throat in Dracula's dog. Rated R, under 17, not admitted without parent. See you marrying a corpse, living in a grave. The vampire can assume very many different forms at will. 
Sometimes it appears as a bat, and sometimes as a small cloud of swirling vapor. In this way it can move unseen among its enemies. Son of Dracula, searing the screen with new terror in this weird tale of the living dead who rise from the grave at night to prey on unsuspecting victims. With Louise Albritton, Robert Page, Evelyn Ankers, Frank Craven, J. Edward Bromberg, and Lon Chaney as the new Count Dracula, you'll shudder at the screen's most fascinating woman vampire, luring men with cold beauty and the promise of immortality. Count Alucard is immortal. Through him, I attained immortality. Through me, you will do the same. Hello there, Monster Kid Radioheads. This is Kenny with a look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. Today, Derek and Beth are breaking the Monster Kid Radio time barrier and talking about the newest Dracula movie in theaters. In that spirit, I'm also going to break the rules and talk about the great Dracula craze of the late 1970s and how Famous Monsters covered it. It started with FM 153, which featured on its cover and an article about Werner Herzog's Nosferatu. Let's take a look at how it was presented. The Phantom of the Night. But what of the vampire's name itself? That mysterious set of four syllables. Of fear syllables. Do they have a meaning? Something sinister? Hidden? Unholy? Yes. In the Romanian tongue, Nosferatu means the undead. This, like Invasion of the Body Snatchers, like the Omega Man, is a second filming. Essentially, the story is that of Dracula. It was originally made as a silent motion picture in 1922, directed by the renowned F.W. Murnau of Germany. It has become a legendary fantasy film that students of the cinema and fans of the fantastic speak of in the same breath with The Gollum and The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. One scene, its nightmarish coach scene, is never forgotten. Nor is the living skeleton, Max Schreck, who portrayed the undead. His very name was a cinnamon for terror. Werner Herzog, director of the new Nosferatu, has said that for him, the original Nosferatu is the most important film in the entire history of German cinema. And that includes, among imaginative works, such masterpieces as Metropolis, Siegfried, the previously mentioned pictures, and, in the mundane genre, Peter Lorre's M. Why then remake a classic, recalling the less-than-classic remakes of The Blue Angel, Crime and Punishment, King Kong, to name but a few failures? I would not have wished to remake Nosferatu, Herzog explains. My film is an entirety into itself. It consists of a version absolutely new. The context and the individuals are different. The plot itself is quite a bit changed. 
A full synopsis followed and ended with this brief conclusion. There is a surprise ending. There is a strong indication that a new classic has been created. A monument for the memory of Murnau. A hallmark for Herzog. In the very next issue, FM 154, Dracula was featured on the cover, but this time for laughs as George Hamilton takes on the role in Love at First Bite. Let's hear some highlights from the article. Lock, stock, and coffin. That's the way George Hamilton figures you'll fall for his farcical treatment of the Dracula legend. This is his 49th film, one of them having been the production of another George Powell, which you will probably remember. The Power, the sci-fi shocker with the late Michael Rennie. Well, George is more powerful than ever in this one, portraying, as he does, the world's leading consumer of liquid refreshment. Count Dracula. Vladimir Dracula, to be exact. 700 years undead. 700 years of one-bite stands. 700 years without a night off for bad behavior. 700 years without a steady girlfriend. He finds them either fly-by-nights or too flighty, till he discovers Susan St. James, better known as Cindy Sondheim in the picture, the top all-American fashion model. Comedian Dick Sean, who appeared in It's a Mad, 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 Mad World, says of Love at First Bite, It's a hilarious comedy about a mad, bad, cad, flad world. Richard Benjamin, you'll remember from Westworld and Quark. Special effects by Alan Hall. Makeup by Oscar winner William Tuttle. Hamilton's three full-length black capes with cream silk lining and Dracula's trademark stand-up collar were tailored from seven yards of fabric and cost nearly $1,000 each. On the set of Love at First Bite, my friend Bill Tuttle told me, You know, Forey, it was 45 years ago that I had my first full-fledged assignment in makeup right here at MGM. I knew at once that he was referring to Bella Lugosi and Carol Borland as the vampiric pair in The Mark of the Vampire. Love at First Bite marks Bill's latest venture into vampirism. Sounds like if you're offered a ticket to Love at First, buy it. Three issues later, in FM 157, Dracula once again graced the cover of Famous Monsters, this time played by Frank Langella. Let's see what FM had to say about this straightforward adaption of the classic story from 1979. Friday the 13th, Dracula Day, USA. Langella rises from the dead. After thrilling and chilling, nocturnal New York theater-goers for 400 fascinating performances, the supernatural saga of the caped count is now available to all. Fly, do not walk, to your nearest movie house to see he who completes the immortal three in the pantheon of the Draculas. Lugosi, Lee, Langella. A detailed look at the opening scenes follows and ends with this conclusion. All this and more is coming to you in Dracula. What we have done here is merely scratch the surface, giving you a glimpse of the opening of the movie. Why, we haven't even met Dracula yet, or Professor Van Helsing. With special effects and settings we have never witnessed in any version of Dracula up until now, Frank Lagella is coming to us in a most powerful way. The horror has but slightly begun. The asylum and Renfield and the inhabitants of this otherwise sleepy village have no idea what the night holds in store for them. 
And for the viewer, we can promise that the rest of the story is just as exciting as these opening scenes. This is but a taste, and as we all know, Dracula has a taste of his own for blood. That is all for this week's look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. We will have more next week. For MKR, this is Kenny saying adios. The Brides of Dracula. Never, never before has a motion picture revealed so much of the mystical, the unnatural. The Brides of Dracula. Out of the unknown darkness he comes. The handsomest, the most evil Dracula of them all bringing horror beyond human endurance to a fashionable girl's school. Who can resist him as one by one he seeks out his fresh, innocent victims? Who will be next to know his kiss of death as one by one he lures young beauties into the timeless, bloodless realm of the undead? Beware of pity, for he feels none. Beware of love, for none can refuse him. Never has the struggle between good and evil been so shocking and the outcome so uncertain. Terror beyond telling in color. The Brides of Dracula. From the spine-chilling world of the living dead comes a never-to-be-forgotten combination of motion picture thrills. Two great new terror hits on one sensational program at your movie theater. Horror of Dracula. Plus, the thing that couldn't die. Horror of Dracula. Dracula, the terrifying lover who lusts for human blood. Dracula, the human vampire who rises each night from his coffin bed to seek the rendezvous that alone can keep him alive. Who will be the bride of Dracula tonight? Horror of Dracula. All new and inflaming technicolor. Plus this second thrill hit, the thing that couldn't die. What is it, this head that lives without a body? A monstrous thing that enslaves every woman, destroys every man who stares into its eyes. See both on the same show. Horror of Dracula and the thing that couldn't die. Right now, Michael Drake hasn't a care in the world. He's off on a camping holiday in California with his wife and two children, plus two dogs and a litter of puppies. What Drake doesn't know is that there are skeletons in his family closet and the bones are about to start rattling with a vengeance. You see, his name isn't really Drake. In the old country, it's pronounced Dracula. I'll tell you one thing, if what you say is true, I'm gonna make a lot of money. No? Yeah, I'm gonna sue all those people who've been making Dracula pictures without my permission. A very funny joke, Mr. Drake. But that is exactly the point. You are the only direct descendant. Don't forget, he wants your blood. We must prepare. In the daytime, we will look for him. At night, he looks for you. What's happening? Summoned by the living dead, they come in the night, thirsting for human blood. Led by the most terrifying creature that ever walked the earth. Sultan, Hound of Dracula. Now there's a nice doggy, but before you pet it, take a good look. It might be a friend of Zoltan, 
Hound of Dracula. Listeners, I have cleverly mentioned earlier in this episode the name of the director of this film, as well as a handful of the actors and that sort of thing, because I'm going to mispronounce the name of the director of the film unless I have it directly in front of me on the screen. And, you know, we're just talking about the movie itself. So the movie we're talking about is The Last Voyage of the Demeter, and it's with my lovely, beautiful bride, Beth. Hi, everyone. How is everybody doing? How are you doing, hon? I'm, I'm good. I'm good. I'm doing really good. I'm excited to talk about this. One, I like having you on the show. But two, this was a movie that I knew about and then kind of forgot about because there wasn't a lot of press about it. It just kind of whimpered its way into the theater in the shadow of Barbenheimer. And, you know, we had an opportunity to see it. It's not getting a lot of great numbers. Like the box office hasn't been great. So I'm happy that we got to see it theatrically. And we're going to talk about it here on the show. Yeah, I was excited to see this one. uh, Dracula being a, a favorite monster of mine. And I agree, it kind of just limped into theaters, both in the shadow of Barbie and Oppenheimer, but also I think in the shadow of the writer's strike and some of the other motion picture associated unions that have been striking lately. I, I think a lot of smaller movies did not get the press that they normally would have because of both of those things, both having two blockbusters opening and, and also so many actors right now can't talk about their movies, you know? Great, uh, great cast in this one, but they can't go to Comic-Con and speak about it. So I guess it's up to folks like us to uh, be their voice for a bit or, or be a voice for these productions. I hadn't really considered that, but that's a really good point. A movie like Barbie's going to sell itself. Oppenheimer, yeah, it's going to sell itself. And there is an Oppenheimer video coming to the Team Death YouTube channel. I'm very behind on editing it, but it's still playing theatrically, so it'll still be relevant when it eventually drops. Mm-hmm. A movie like this still... I feel like to get more mainstream acceptance really does need that extra push. Comic-Con didn't have the Hollywood presence. Some people thought that was a great thing, kind of got it back to its roots. But because of that, some of the smaller genre pictures that would have normally been presenting and promoting weren't able to do so. So you're right. Something I hadn't considered. Also, this is something that Kenny brought up to me in a message. Kenny, the man behind the Famous Sponsors of Filmland segment, Mm -hmm. he thought the movie had a terrible title. Well, maybe I'm overstating, but he thought that the word Dracula, the name Dracula, should have been in the title of the film somewhere so that more audience engagement could have happened with people who Mm. knew what Dracula was. The mainstream, the normies or whatever, do they know what the heck a Demeter is? I don't know. That's true if you've not read the original Dracula. Even if you've seen a lot of the films about him, Half the time they don't even mention the name of the ship. If they do, it's in passing, and and it's like they'll be in Transylvania, and then they're like, oh, we need to go to England. And there's a ship on the rocks in England. And then we're like, okay, well, let's move on. We're done with that part now. For those of us who love Dracula and have read it, we knew what the movie was basically going to be about. But for people that are just general fans of Dracula, they might not have understood the connection and therefore be missing a movie that they would have really enjoyed in the theater. I agree with you 100%. Now, we're going to stay away from spoilers for now. Mm -hmm. But there are some spoilery things that I do want to talk about. So 
we'll give you fair warning, listener, mm-hmm. that spoilers will be coming. We'll have the count come on and give you that spoiler warning that you hear in the episode <laughs> uh, whenever we talk about movie spoilers. But just kind of general thoughts. I'm really glad we went to see it. Oh, yes. It was fantastic to look at. I think it was amazingly realized in terms of its gothic storytelling and production design. Mm-hmm. It looked amazing. I know it must have been a combination of sets and CGI and, and computer graphics and things. I, I thought the blending for the most part was really well done. I, I couldn't tell necessarily where the sets ended and the CGI began on those mm-hmm. things. And and yet it wasn't uh, so dark that I couldn't enjoy it. You know, that's something in in certain superhero movies that I've, I've felt has been a problem recently, that things are just too dang dark and you can't see what's what, or everything just blurs together. You could see what was going on in this, even though a lot of it's at night and in foul weather, because, you know, when you're sailing up the coast of England, they're not known for their great weather. Yeah. You mentioned the CGI. There's been a lot of comment made online in the reviews and the discussion about this film that it's all practical effects when it comes to the monster. Well, that's not true. Mm -hmm. You can tell that Dracula, especially early in the film, when you're seeing way too much of him way too early. That I agree with. It's a full CGI creation. Now, later on, when we're getting close-ups, it's physical. It's Mm -hmm. makeup. It's fantastic. Uh, He looks really good. But there are a few moments where the CGI creature does stand out a little bit to me. Mm -hmm. And I think part of it was because I did hear all the ballyhoo about, it's all practical, it's all practical. No, no, it's not. There's some CGI stuff that did stand out. But overall, it still felt really good to me. And you're right about it not being too dark. Uh, The cinematographer did a really good job. And the director who does have genre cred, so he knows how to manipulate light and shadow and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. I wasn't a big fan of his movie Troll Hunter. I know a lot of people like that one. I really like his movie The Autopsy of Jane Doe a lot. So, I mean, he's used to manipulating images to make them scary. And this one has a lot of scary images. You know, as someone coming out of the the haunt industry... There's a lot of jump scares mm-hmm. in this. I, I jumped several times. You laughed quite a lot at me when I was jumping, I know. But um, a lot of jump scares in this one. A, a lot of uh, anticipation mm-hmm. leading up to scares. I, I felt that the music really added to that quite a bit. And the music by Bear McCreary, who has been doing a lot. Yes. A lot of television, a lot of genre film. Of course, we, we love his work on Outlander. Outlander, uh, he does a lot of TV. Didn't he do a lot of, like, Battlestar Galactica? Mm-hmm. And I know that he did some work on The Walking Dead, I believe. Yes. Um, and a lot of other genre of TV. Other things, yeah. yeah, and his work is really good. Mm-hmm. And I thought what he did here sounded really good as well. Uh, and it really married itself well to the gothic or pseudo-gothic imagery. Mm-hmm. It, it really felt... Not out of place, which sometimes when you have somebody who's known for doing a lot of genre work, their stuff starts to sound a little samey-samey. I haven't had that problem with Bear's work. This is a score that I'm going to acquire and listen to while I'm writing. I know, um, and again, this isn't spoiling anything, um, one of my favorite moments takes place on a ship. 
uh, men who are, are sailors on ships are known to often bring musical instruments and have music, and you, you get one of the crew members playing the theme Mm -hmm. on on his I don't know if it was a fiddle or a violin I honestly can't remember but small stringed instrument and then that theme is used in in the actual score and so I thought that was a really nice touch it was very good and so was a lot of the acting in fact I'm gonna say that there was not an actor here I did not like I agree there were some actors that I liked a little bit better than others mm -hmm. I suppose but I did really like the acting as well uh, the one actress name whose name I do know off the top of my head is Liam Cunningham who was fantastic as the Onion Knight in the Game of Thrones series. Mm -hmm. uh, he's amazing in this as the ship's captain. So good. Just wonderful. I thought he was amazing. Yeah, Liam uh, Cunningham is a favorite of mine in, in a lot of different mm -hmm. things. I've, I've seen him in a lot of different works that he's done. Movies, TV, all kinds of things. And he is very believable as the ship captain you know, taking his, we learn right off the bat, he's, he's on his last voyage, he's getting ready to retire. And if you ever watched a Lethal Weapon movie, you know that means something terrible is about to happen to yeah, him. Yeah, yeah, never, never let them know you're going to retire. Come on now. <laughs> <laughs> That's just asking for trouble. Right. But he was really good. Uh, the guy who played Mr. Wojciech, mm -hmm. I thought was really good. And he's a monster kid. He loves this stuff. Oh, okay. He has done... Uh, not press for the movie, but some publicity photos of him have turned up online, especially on Facebook, in which you can see he's wearing a necklace with a particular pendant on it. And uh -huh. that pendant, they've been able to, they, the fans, have been able to trace it to uh, a vial of dirt from Romania, from Dracula's <laughs> castle, that was sold in things like Famous Monsters of Film on Magazine back in the day, that sort of oh. thing. So he's an old school monster kid. He's nice. also a horror host. Uh, he's done stuff with Midnight Mausoleum as Dr. Fearless. Uh, he was in a movie we just watched. Oh, he was in Oppenheimer. Um, he was also in The Suicide Squad as the polka dot mm -hmm. dude. Uh, he's just done a lot of genre and quirky stuff. So what a cool dude. Yeah, and he's fantastic. And I'm just waiting for him to accept my friend request on Facebook. So if you're listening, you know, hook a brother up. Uh, he was really good. And then Mr. Clemens is our lead character, our viewpoint character for the most part. And he was really good. He was really good. It was his story that we're following. Mm -hmm. uh, the guy who's trying to find passage from wherever it is they start to England. Mm -hmm. And his story as to why he's going back and forth gets touched on a little bit. I don't know how much of that we really needed to make this film work. But it's there to kind of explain away why he's there and why he's trying to get back. I do feel like his background adds some of the tension between himself and the crew because he's not someone that they would regularly just accept, you know, at face value. And, and so then when you've already got suspicion and, and you're already on, you know, on edge between crew members, then uh, adding crisis on top of that yeah. is just going to intensify everything. And it's his relationship with Wojciech that I really liked. Mm -hmm. uh, they do have a relationship that, that changes through the course of the film and I really enjoyed that and it felt natural. And you're right, he definitely has this outsider vibe. You know, we brought somebody onto the ship that we've never sailed with before and now, well, people are dying. It's a horror movie. I don't think that's a spoiler. People are dying. What's different this time? Oh, we got this outsider. We got this stranger. And some other cargo. And, yeah, there's this, this tension that 
comes up and it starts to play into some of my favorite things about like zombie movies where mm-hmm. it's not about the outside threat. It's about us just our inability to get along. Yeah. And that added another layer to the horror movie as well to me. I think that whole ability to get along in an enclosed space, which a ship is, it's it's limited space. There's only so far you can go. And if somebody's found to uh, be not aligned with the rest of the crew, there's pretty much one way you get rid of them, and that's over the side. So there's mm-hmm. always that threat of being thrown over the side, which is death in yeah. that instance, you know. There's no way you're going to survive that. So, yeah, I, I agree. I really like that. I had one other performance that I really enjoyed, although I'm, if I'm honest, I don't know the actor's name. Toby. The kid. The kid. What a great job at holding stage presence and, and holding his own against some really accomplished actors. I mean... Several of these guys have played Shakespeare in the globe, you know, and, and he's just a kid. <laughs> you know, he probably wears tennis shoes and <laughs> goes to elementary school. And he really held his own and was able to, uh, I feel like, accurately portray a young boy on a ship at that time. And we'll talk a little bit about this when we get into the spoilers. He has to do more than just, I'm the plucky mascot that's along for the ride. There are things that he has to do in the story that it calls for him to be, yeah, the happy kid that everybody sings around, as well as dealing with some real tragedy. And it was believable all the way around for him. So he was very strong. Well, and even before the ship really gets going with, with all of the horror craziness, just the, the first day or two out to sea, we see what a vital member of the crew. He has jobs on the ship. He has right. responsibilities, and if he doesn't do them, it very much affects the rest of the crew. Uh, I did uh, like that they made a point of having quite a small crew. For the size of ship, the number of sails, um, I've sailed on... A slightly smaller ship than that, and we had more than double the people than than they had for crew in this movie. It comes at a time, and you saw this at the docks in the movie, when the steamers are starting to come. You're starting to get the first steamships. You're starting to get the Ironsides. You're starting to get all of these other ships, and the sailing ships are becoming more and more obsolete, and they're struggling to hold their own in terms of carrying cargo that's worth enough to make the trip worthwhile and you know so they don't have a cost for fuel but it takes so much longer to get there that they have to pay the crew more and feed them and and house them and all of those things so it's it's an interesting look at that time period economically and and culturally of how things were changing and how that might lead a captain who just wanted to get this last trip done with how he might take on a very high-priced cargo no questions asked and thus lead himself to this situation you know he's probably just wants to be done he just wants to get out of the business and 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 be done with sailing the the sailing ships or the wooden ships it doesn't surprise me that if somebody came up and said, you know, hey, I'll, I'll pay you 
quite a bit more than the going rate, and all you have to do is carry these few crates to England. Sure, why not, you know? Very believable. I did think the movie ran a little long. It's almost two hours long. There are some things in the movie that I probably would have not considered including, and we'll talk about that when we get to the spoilers. Mm -hmm. There's a particular moment of character background info dumping that I felt was a little superfluous and not necessarily necessary mm-hmm. for it to work, especially, well, again, I don't want to spoil it yet. We'll get yeah. to that point. But I did think it ran just a little bit long, and I wonder if maybe shortening it up would have given us the opportunity or given distributors and theatrical uh, or theater owners an opportunity to book more screenings and maybe bring in more people. I also kind of thought it ran a little long and... You know, where I thought it actually ran a little long was some of the stuff with the monster. Mm-hmm. We talked about, we felt like the monster was shown too early. We saw too much of the monster too early. Yes. And then we kept seeing a lot of the monster. And like with the haunted house, the whole point is that you dart in, you scare the person, and you get out. If you sit in front of them for long enough, you're no longer scary. So I, I felt like shortening up some of the monster chase scenes and things could have both shortened the movie, which would have been nice, and also made the monster scarier by seeing him less. Yes. So this is based on basically one chapter or part of a chapter of the original novel mm-hmm. in which you said earlier that Dracula cargo gets onto a boat, it goes to England, cut to ship sails into England, there's a bunch of dead bodies on board, or maybe just one dead body well, on board. it crashes. Against, it crashes. Yeah, it crashes against the rocks. There are some dead bodies, and there's a sh- ship's log. Yes. And yeah. so the chapter is told exactly. through this ship's log. And to really drive that point home in this movie, we have titles on the screen to tell us that, mm-hmm. and then the movie begins after the ship has sailed in and crashed, and we have a survivor basically mm-hmm. telling us that you didn't need both. You could have cut one and maybe saved about four minutes worth of screen yeah. time and theatrical running time. You didn't need both. Again, these are just the little things that I would have cut to tighten it up just a little bit. Mm-hmm. These little moments here and there before we get into any spoilers or anything like that. I do want to ask you mm-hmm. about Dracula. Okay. Who's your favorite Dracula that you've experienced? Gosh. I put her on the spot, folks. I didn't tell her I was going to ask her this. <laughs> it, it is. So, you know, they're all so different. That... Okay, if you had to say like two or three. That way you're not like forgetting one or whatever. And you're not upsetting me because you're not mentioning Lugosi. Well, I mean, yeah. So like for for the old boys, the, uh-huh. the you know, the good old, old boys. boys. The, good, the good old boys club, you know, good old boy monster club. <laughs> um, yeah, I'd, I'd say Lugosi. I really actually enjoyed, I, I can't believe I'm saying this, I enjoyed Nicolas Cage's Dracula in we, Renfield. We just saw Renfield not yeah. too long ago. Yeah, he, he was really pretty... I enjoyed that. I know they really tried to play that movie as up as if it was connected to the original Dracula with some of the mm-hmm. deep fake inserting of Nicolas Cage and the other guy whose name I'm blanking on, Nicholas Holt? Nicholas Holt, Holt. yes. Uh, into footage from the 31 Dracula. Yes, it's a very different Dracula, and he's very over the top. You go into that movie expecting it to be a camp fest. 
Nicolas Cage is biting everything, not just his victims. He's chewing yeah. everything up on screen. Yeah, he's fun. Yeah, he's eating the scenery, definitely. And then I won't go into detail as why yet, because okay. spoilers, but incredibly, I think this one, and I will go into more detail in our spoiler section later, is my favorite Dracula for his beast form, as okay. it were. Some turn into, you know, a little flappy bat, batty, batty, bat, batty, batty, bat, batty, batty, bat, one, two, three, no? Don't you do the batty bat? <laughs> we are Sesame Street kids here, or I was, anyway. Okay, okay. Um, and also I have a grandfather that looks like the Count from Sesame Street, so, you know. <laughs> oh my God, he does. He does, right? You can't unsee it now. Oh no. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> See, I always thought he looked like Costello, but now he's... Well, he's, now he's, he's a little bit of both. It depends on how much beard he has. And, Costello? And if he's dyed it black, you know, because, like, anyone thinks that a 93-year-old uh, has a dark beard, sure. <laughs> wow. Love you, Grandpa Ray. But, yeah, I think this one is my favorite beast form of all the different ones that I've seen. and And that includes, like, some... Pretty vicious, like indie movie ones, where sure. where people really had made a cool monster and then forgot about plot. But but the monster was cool, you know. So I think this one has the best beast form, particularly when it is the makeup and prosthetics. And I don't really want to say suit because I don't think it's like a one piece thing. I think it's a whole bunch of different techniques all put together. I don't know, and I want to look into it, because the guy who played him does a lot of this kind of work. In fact, he played yes. Set in the Tom Cruise Mummy movie. Mm -hmm. So we have this connection between Dracula and the Mummy now, which oh. I mean, which may or may not be good, depending on what you think about the Dark Universe failed attempt. I don't know. I think there was a full suit at one point, but again, I don't know. There's definitely makeup and prosthetic pieces that are being applied directly to the face it's not like a hooded mask you can tell that yeah. and which is great because it gives the actor who is known for playing this type of role the ability to do those facial movements and head movements and neck movements that can make the creature even creepier and scarier when you're in a suit that restricts your movement it really restricts your ability to act through the through the suit. So I was glad that they didn't go with something like that, that, that they went yeah. the way they did. Not everybody's a Doug Jones. Yes, exactly. Although this guy might be the horror version, like the real horror version of Doug Jones. I, I don't know. We'll see. I'm interested in this guy's career. I want to mm -hmm. look into this stuff. Uh, I do want to say real quick, because you said beast form, this Dracula definitely feels more like... Count Orlock from the original Nosferatu film. Yes. Uh, he does not have any Lagosiisms, Leeisms, anything like that. He is truly a beast until the very end. Yeah, this is that. not a smooth talking no. charm by speaking to you, Dracula. If that's what you like, this is not the movie for you. He is a feral predator. And I say feral, yes. not necessarily like he's out of control, but just that aggressive. He's not the smooth talker. He is a beast. He's an animal. For me, Lugosi obviously is going to be at the top. I think I've made that mm. very clear over the years. Christopher Lee, of course. Oh, yeah. There's a guy by the name of Francis Letterer who oh, played okay. Dracula in one feature film. But my preferred version of his Dracula is an episode of The Outer Limits, a very short piece. And I think I showed that to you. It's where 
Okay, you can hear the bats swooping in. That's because they are here to correct a mistake I made. That wasn't an episode of The Outer Limits. That was an episode of Night Gallery. Uh, I don't know how I mixed the two. Completely different shows by completely different creators. I I don't know what just happened. I, I, I don't know. Anyway, back to the show. It's where it said during World War II when the Nazis mm-hmm. take over a castle and Dracula's there and he's like, look what I did during the war, son. And yeah, the vampires fight. And I love that. But another one of my favorite Draculas is a guy by the name of Duncan Regeer. Mm-hmm. Duncan Regeer was in probably the worst episode of Star Trek The Next Generation, where Beverly Crusher falls in love with a ghost. He mm-hmm. plays the ghost. But he also appeared in three episodes of Deep Space Nine as a Bajoran whatever. Mm-hmm. But he is Dracula from the Monster Squad. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that version of Dracula. I um, remember you pointing that out when we watched Monster Squad. I, I love, and part of it's because I love that movie, but I think he's a fantastic Drac. So good. You know, it is a much higher quality Dracula than I expected from that movie. Yeah. From yeah. from a cheesy kids movie, you know, it, it, that's what it is. But and that's okay. It is what it is. Mm-hmm. But yeah, no, some several of the monsters in that one I thought were of quite decent quality. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So yeah, those are probably my favorites in terms of like favorite Dracula movies. I'm not going to put you on the spot for that because there are so many of them. I just don't know that I can pick any particular we- ones. You know, anything that's not. Dracula dead and loving it. I'm down for. <laughs> I, it was cute once, but like, oof. We used to do a, a Hammer Films podcast, Scott yeah. Morris, Casey Criswell, and I, and that was the running joke that they loved that movie, mm-hmm. and I did not. I, I still don't really think of that movie very fondly. I actually really like campy parodies of classics, like Robin Hood Men in Tights. Love that movie. Love it. Love it. Love it. But. For me, Dracula Dead and Loving It, with the exception of the guy that played Renfield, just doesn't hit. He no. was very, very good. He had the whole, like, tongue-to-fly yeah. thing down and, and the, the, the nervous character. But it was too jokey for me. When it first came out, I remember, oh, gosh, there's, like, one moment that made me laugh out loud because back then I thought blood was a punchline. And they're staking the vampire bride, and mm-hmm. she just sprays blood just, everywhere, yeah, like they they're in a Japanese going, anime. It's just, yeah, it's, it's never-ending. It's insane. Plus, I think Amy Yazbek is in that movie. Yes. And I had a mad crush on her at Aww. the time. <laughs> I I have a thing for redheads, okay? Oh well. You know? We are cute, you know? You, you are. So, um, but yeah, I, I don't... Mm, yeah. Anyway, you've not seen few, if any... Hammer Dracula films with Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing, I don't believe. Correct. I think I have kind of seen one, but it was in high school. We used to show different mm-hmm. horror movies uh, every other Friday night and have like lock-ins and stuff and sell popcorn and snacks sure. and stuff. It was a fundraiser thing uh, for one of our clubs. And I know we played at least one of theirs one of the times because that was real popular. Uh, but I would have just been like watching it while I was working sure. and stuff. So I just doesn't not like sitting down and paying attention. We can correct that because I, I think you'd like some of them. Okay, great. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, let's go ahead and roll into some spoilers here. All right. You, you ready? Yep. Spoiler yes. warning, spoiler everybody. Spoiler warning. We are about to have spoilers. If you do not want spoilers, if you have not seen the movie yet, you should probably stop now. Pause right now. But come back, come come back. back to this after you've seen the movie. This is Count Vlad. 
but you may recognize me by my more familiar name, Count Dracula, and I'm here to offer you a friendly warning. Derek and his guests often get excited, and occasionally this results in revealing key plot points of the movies they're discussing. In your parlance, you might call these revelations spoilers. You know how the children of the night, ah, I mean monster kids, can get sometimes. So consider yourself warned, and don't come begging to me to kill them for their transgressions afterward. I have more pressing issues to take care of, like that pesky Van Helsing. I thought the movie made some pretty brave choices. We know that because of how it is inserted into the Dracula story, we know there are no survivors. The entire time I'm watching the movie, well, well for the most part, there are almost no survivors. The entire time I we're mean, watching Dracula survivors. Well, that's true. That's true. The entire time we're watching the movie, I kept thinking, what's going to happen here? Is Clemens and Toby and the woman and the dog, we're going to get on a lifeboat and row off and disappear into the mists yeah. and make it. But yeah. the filmmakers didn't do this. Instead, the filmmakers did two things that trigger warning. There's some animal violence. Yes. Although most is off. Most off screen. It happens off screen. You see the result of it. And we're not just talking about the livestock. But when the livestock goes, Toby is very upset because that was Toby's responsibility. That was his job and he did it so well. And you could just tell that he had such pride in his animals. And I was so sad for him. But there's also violence against kids. Yes. Toby is not a survivor. Well, again, there are barely any survivors. So, in the, in the way they did that, I'm not saying that I enjoy watching kids in peril, because I don't. And sure. I don't, in, it's not that I enjoy watching animals in peril, because I don't. Mm -hmm. I'm an animal person. Especially a domesticated, well, I'm a vegetarian, so any yes. animal. Yes. I thought the choice to have the effects of that shown, and with Toby... More than once, because Toby does get vamped. He gets vamped and then dies again. And set on, and bursts and, into flame and the whole and, nine yards. Well, yes, and he sets the law for us that the vampires will burst. Well, we, so you were in the bathroom the first time we saw flame. it happen. Oh, okay. So I, did, I, again, yeah. the movie was too long. I couldn't yep. make it. <laughs> so the first mate, or, not the first oh. mate, but the one guy that was kind of looking around or whatever with yes. Clemens, he bursts into flames okay. first. But either way. So we know that, you know, at, at that point we've got, we're starting to get some of the rules about how it works. And so, like, they know that during the day, if they're out on deck, they're safe, basically. And, it, you know, it gives them some sense. But, yeah, the Toby thing, that was just, I, I'm gonna call oh, it, I was not ready for that. Yeah. Like, I realized once they were out at sea, oh, my gosh, there's this kid. And I, too, was thinking, lifeboat, please put the kid and the dog on a lifeboat. Like, kill everyone else, just put the kid and the dog on a lifeboat. They did not. They did not. So um, so if that's something that you or the person accompanying you to this movie would have a problem with, and maybe we should even put some sort of warning. Yeah, well, and, and I will put notes in, in the show notes. Uh, I'll also Vague warning, a, but, yeah. you know, to so that, yeah, we'll put that in. There's a website that I use now when I'm picking movies for the stream called mm -hmm. Does the Dog Die? You go to doesthedogdie.com and type in a movie, mm -hmm. and it'll, it doesn't just talk about whether dogs die, but yeah. anything that could be considered a trigger warning or something objectionable, animal violence, uh, do people die, sexual assault, domestic violence, anything like that, 
will be listed there. Mm -hmm. So I will make sure there's a link to this movie's listing on that website in the show notes so that you can be prepared going into it. Keep in mind it is an R-rated film. It's not directed at a general audience or kids or anything like that. Uh, so I think the rating was definitely appropriate. And again, I'm going to call it brave because it was different than what you would normally expect from a Hollywood film. Mm -hmm. I know this movie was in production or, or various forms of turnaround and development for many, many years. And I don't know at what point that was worked into the story. Interesting choice. Definitely something that shocked me in a good way. Yeah, um, I, I agree. I, I was shocked at the initial attack mm -hmm. with the kid. Although once the animals had been found attacked, I was pretty sure we were going to at some point have the kid attacked. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that did not only did that happen, but then, yes, having to deal with a parental figure, having that moment of, oh, no, no, he's alive. It's OK. He's alive. You know, and, and mm -hmm. others being like, well, no, he's moving, but he's not OK. And it's, he's going to be gone in a moment. And that, that was yeah, whew, gonna... that was pretty heavy for me. The heartbreak. And then we're going to revisit the heartbreak. I just said something a second ago. The woman. Yes. There's a woman on board. There's a woman on the ship, which is clearly why everything went wrong in the first place. Because wow, you, know, you went there. I didn't. It's, it's, <laughs> in the old days, it was very unlucky to have a woman on board. The, they find a woman in one of the crates of dirt. Basically, Dracula's to-go meal. Well, it's a sippy cup. It's a sippy cup. Oh, no. <laughs> She's Dracula's sippy cup. Wow. Okay. Which, you know, kind of makes sense, I suppose. But yeah, there's a woman on board. A that... lot of vampire lore includes powerful vampires having like a thrall or someone oh, yeah. that is basically their food source, even voluntarily in many cases. Yeah, there was no Renfield in this, so yeah. we, we didn't have that character to like help the master do whatever. Instead, we had this woman on board that's riddled with scars from various bites. Yeah, uh, they do. Really bad. <laughs> yeah, they do nurse her back to health. Mm -hmm. They do bring her back to health, and we hear this horrible backstory about how the village makes these offerings of women to the beast to yeah. keep him from just devastating the village, and you know, all of this is out of the woman's control, her control. And there's a nice moment towards the end where she makes a decision that. You know, is it going to end well? Because, again, no survivors. But she makes a point of saying, you know, all my life, I've not had a choice because of who I am and where yes. I live. This is my choice. Exactly. And I thought that was powerful. Yeah, I really like that, too. Maybe not as powerful as, say, like Barbie. But, you know, <laughs> it was powerful. It was. And, and I really liked, you know, the, the small relationship that was created between her and the young man, Toby. Mm. You know, because mm -hmm. he's put in charge of kind of keeping an eye on her and watching over her. And and so he feels protective of her yeah. in, in that way. And, and there are moments where, you know, I was really genuinely wondering, is she somehow in on it? Is is she oh, wow. working with Dracula? Is she helping? You know, is she attacking people too? It wasn't, it wasn't entirely clear until, you know, until the end. So yeah. that, I thought that was a nice touch too, keeping us guessing, or at least kept me guessing as to, whether she was just a victim or a willing participant in the slaughter. So I hadn't considered that, but that's a good call. So they find her in this crate of dirt. They know the crates are bad news. 
Uh, yes, it, and one crate has a big old fancy seal on it. And it, there's like a weird puzzle they have to do to open up the crate yeah. and all that. Why didn't they just bring it out on board during the day, open it up, and just spill it out on the deck and have the sunlight bathe over it and call it good? Right. There were a couple of choices that I feel like could have been made, should have been made. And I keep telling myself it's because I've seen so many vampire movies and I know how they work. But on the other hand, we have this character, Clemens, who is college-educated, very smart, makes a point earlier in the film to talk about how he's trying to figure out how the world works. He would have figured that out. I feel like that waiting till night to deal with some of these things or or not holding up until daytime and for dramatic i assume for dramatic uh visual shot effect by the uh film director the crate in which dracula is hanging out is directly below a giant grate that they yeah. can literally just lift up and put netting down lift the thing up in the air nobody even really has to be touching it yep. like and then just open it up, like you said, or whatever, yeah. and, and, you know, or, heck, toss him in the water. Yeah, I mean... The, Bust the top off the grate and chuck it in the sea, you know? Chuck it in the water. I, I know there's the vampires can't cross running water trope, which... Well, except... Except it does kind, kind of happen of in this. They kind of break that in this, yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, at one point, uh, some of our friends tried to escape in a lifeboat, and that doesn't go so well, because... So he's somebody else I want to talk about. Yeah. He's played by an actor named John John, and I forget his last name. The last time I saw him in something was in Picard Season 2. Oh. He played Seven of Nine's husband in the alternate reality. Yes, him. Okay. Um, anyway. I've forgotten that, but yeah. he, he, He's done a lot of work, and I thought he was great. Oh. I, I like the, the idea of a character who, he's the chef. I run my galley, stay out of my galley. Yep. And if you take the Lord's name in vain... I'm not going to feed you. Mm -hmm. I thought that was, you know, in... I'm a simple guy. Here's my rules. You you obey my rules. We're all going to get along fine. And that was great. I mean, it was yeah. a, a character that was painted with just a few lines of dialogue, and we knew everything we needed to know about him. Also, and I don't know what his background is, he presents his Asian American. Yes? yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That is never touched on in the film. No. But our main guy, who's African American... We have to have a moment where he talks about how he couldn't get work because he's a black man. Now, I'm not saying that that moment didn't mean something. But I feel like, again, in an effort to trim some time, some of that could have been cut because we already kind of got it. You know what I mean? I think, though, I think part of the difference there, I, I agreed that it was touched on multiple times where it didn't need to be repeatedly hammered home i think we got it with the first one or really i thought the first time could have been cut and just gone to the second and maybe mm -hmm. the third one but we don't need a fourth at all i think the one difference though between the two characters is that one is a cook on a on a pretty low end ship because it's still a sailing ship there is no engine of any kind you know we're we're one of the older models with a small crew, it looks like it's it's just not one of the big, huge vessels that are, that are making these grand voyages. It's, it's a small ship. Mm -hmm. The other's a doctor. And for an African-American man to be a doctor at that time, or an Afri or a, you know African-British man, I, I can't remember what he presented against. Well, that's true, that's true, exactly. yeah. 
that was a big deal for a black man to be a doctor at that time. Anywhere in the world would have been a black big deal. And he makes a point of saying he went to, was it Cambridge? Yeah. Cambridge. And, and that in and of itself would have been very difficult to gain admission at that point in time because it was long before they were admitting even women, you know, sure. much, much less non-white folks. That said, the performance was great. I mean, he was so good. I, I think he is a character that I would like to spend more time with. I suspect we might get to based on uh, There's a, yeah. the end of the film. They clearly set themselves up to be able to have another film. Which I have mixed thoughts on. Or mixed feelings or mixed thoughts? Both. Okay. I feel like because we know this is a story that is inserted into the Dracula narrative, mm -hmm. and the rest of the Dracula narrative does not have a Mr. Clemens or Dr. Clemens running around, we're going off script here, and we're kind of breaking the canon or the continuity or whatever. But, you know, it's their own story, so they can do their own thing. I half expected, actually, for, at the end, the guy to say, well, I have to change my name now because I'm on the register, so now I'll call myself Van Helsing. Yeah, that's it. And that's the origin story of Van Helsing. But... That didn't happen. That's that kind of what I was expecting. Oh, I'm actually kind of glad they didn't do that. What I am wondering is, you know, I really enjoyed that we got such a minute-by-minute minute look at a very small period of time from the story. Mm -hmm. It really is just a few days, I think. Is it like yeah, two it, weeks total, maybe? Yeah, yeah. yeah it's, it's not that long, because they're only coming from, like, the Mediterranean up to, you know, up to England there. And so... It's a short period of time that we're looking at in very great detail. And yes, there are some time skips, like, you know, for several hours in the night or several hours during a day watch or whatever. But we pretty much know what's going on every moment. It's just sometimes the same thing is going on for a lot of moments, so we skip ahead. But we have every single moment from when they're leaving the dock to when they're all crashed on the rocks, and just a touch more, I would love to see that same sort of attention for, okay, he's on land, but he hasn't gotten to where he's going yet. Now we have travel over land that has to be accomplished. We have places to stop. I assume he's still hungry, and we have someone potentially on, that could be on his heels chasing him, you know? He needs to get somewhere he can rest. He needs to get to this place he's rented. We need to meet a Renfield in, in that situation. Maybe even start to meet some of the other classic Dracula characters. But I think you could do a whole nother movie and really just be ending right where most of the Dracula movies are picking up after the ship. That's fascinating. You know, you described that, and you're right. That could be a really interesting story. How fascinating is it that basically what we now have is a bit of Dracula fan fiction? Mm -hmm. You know, we, we have an established property that somebody has gone and created a story that takes place within that property, filling in a blank that was missing for whatever reason. I, I think that's really neat. What I would really be curious to see in it, we've mentioned several times that we thought this movie had too much of Dracula in his beast form being fully shown. Yeah. In light, I don't necessarily need a ton more of that. No. But I would like to see the people that he has transformed because we 
don't get a full view of his transformed folks. True. In this, they True. they all meet their end before we get you know like a full at night mm-hmm. arms slash wings spread. You know, I would like to see over days or the week that it takes to travel. He clearly is going to make some more vampires as well as probably feed off of people, which does not necessarily kill people, being fed off. Yeah, and I think that's something that Dr. Clemens would have tried to figure out, or would have figured out. And so he could just feed off of people along the way on a trail, but not actually be leaving bodies, is is all I'm saying. As he Uh, does feed, he does evolve. Yes. He starts from like this very weak kind of mm-hmm. form and towards the end he's got wings. And Oh, mm-hmm. and I thought that was so cool. It looks great. I mean, as he's eating, you yes. know, as he's feeding, he's becoming more and more powerful mm-hmm. and at the end of the movie he's in full on able to pass on the streets of London or wherever it is they are in a heavy coat and hat, but he's able to pass but as it's, human. you know, it's rainy London and he's got a great coat with the collar turned up and a low hat. In the novel and in the first film with Lugosi, mm-hmm. he can walk around during the day. He's just at a weakened power state. Yes. So having daylight destroy the vampires, I, I again, I feel like we hammered home the fact that this is based on an existing novel so much they kind of did themselves a disservice for people who are really into that kind of thing yeah by veering off the novel well, projection and by just kind of having a pick and choose shopping cart method of which vampire yeah. rules that they were going to use so clearly he needs dirt yep from, from his, his homeland oh it does have to be from his homeland that's okay. the traditional I thing it, i thought it just had to be consecrated uh, but ideally it's from yeah, transylvania yeah. okay uh, so he needs his dirt, you know, although often we have him in a coffin, and I think in this case he's just, like, in the dirt or something. Yeah, like creates the dirt, yeah. Yeah, because the creature's just kind of naked or whatever, mm-hmm. um, which is also weird that they put him in naked. Like, doesn't he need clothing when he gets where he's going? It it makes me wonder, when they put him in the crate, are they expecting him to evolve as they go, or is he just supposed well, to be sipping off of this girl and not get out? Was getting out always the plan, I guess, is my question, you know? Maybe. At one point in the movie, they talk about the cleverness of the creature and how he's rationing his food by only eating one person a night until they get to England so that he'll have enough food to last. That's an interesting take for me of it being such a beast, but then also it's able to ration. How do those two reconcile? And then things like crosses rosaries, no effect at all. Nothing. That's, that's true. You know, it can fly with, once it has wings, it can fly across clearly running water because it's the ocean. It's the Atlantic Ocean. You can't get more running water than that. And yet it's flying right over the water from the ship to the lifeboat and back again. I will point out that when he does first get out, his first victims are the animals. And he tears through the livestock in one go. Yeah. It's, it's, so I wonder if maybe he is more bestial at that point and can't oh. ration the animals because he just needs to feed. And once he gets that dose, then he can start planning a little bit more. Well, and once he started attacking the animals, they probably made a lot of noise. And so he needs to yeah, silence them quickly. Good Otherwise, point. everyone's going to come running. Good point. And good at point. that point, he's too weak to fight people off. If they had known then, they probably could have done something about it. I also really liked... and. I'm going to reference a super old episode of mine, not even a Monster Kid Radio podcast, but years ago when I was doing Mail Order Zombie, mm-hmm. I did an interview with uh, author Douglas Clegg, who is one of my favorite horror authors. 
You Come When I Call You is one of my favorite horror novels. Um, okay. I would love to maybe share that with you at some sure. point. I, I just really like what he does. Yeah, yeah. And I interviewed him because he had a book coming out and it was my podcast. It wasn't zombies at all, but I wanted to talk to one of my favorite authors and I made right. it happen. Yeah. And he kind of explained to me that if you look at most horror stories, the reason the things happen to the people in the horror stories, the bad things happen, mm -hmm. is because they made a bad choice. Okay. That there's something in that movie where they veered left when they should have gone right, and they're doomed at that point. And in this movie, I feel like there's a moment where everybody's talking about how we should just dump the crates mm -hmm. and all the sailors, the remaining sailors, but then we won't get paid. Whoops. Maybe if, you know, and, and I get that, but I feel like that's the choice where they just doomed themselves. It definitely sparked some interesting thoughts for me, both in I was taking a nap like the day or two after we had gone and seen it and just midday nap, little little green couch and a blanket and then 50 pounds of cat on my feet because <laughs> the boys decided to nap with me, uh, whether I wanted them to or not. And kind of started thinking about this in my dream and seeing some of the stuff in the movie. And then when I woke up, I was thinking about it some more. There's an interesting parallel here between the rich and like those who own major corporations that employ a lot of people and their workers and what the workers are willing to do for that pay and how they're even even to the point of sacrificing their own well-being and lives. There's an interesting parallel here that, I, that I've thought about in the past with Dracula a little bit, but it really right now in the social consciousness feels like an interesting choice by the director to kind of really highlight that. Because they do, they go, well, then we won't get paid. Oh, okay, but we'll be alive. And people get so short-sighted on one thing like that that they ignore their own well-being, you know, just for that paycheck. It's interesting that you say that because there's been a lot of parallels or comparisons between this movie and the first two Alien films. Oh, okay. And it does have that vibe, you know, you're mm -hmm. in a, a stuck small spot and it's a, a ship in a bottle story and everything's going bad and you can't go anywhere to get away from it. But that's also something that's present in the first two Alien films, mm -hmm. is that there's a corporation that yes. knows full well there's something bad there, but we're still sending our blue-collar guys to go deal with it. Well, and we specifically have that in this case, because sometimes when you, even when you see something about the Demeter in a Dracula movie or play, I guess I'm, there's a play that I had seen that I'm thinking of here, but it's like... The ship captain is his own guy. They, they've yep. hired the ship at the dock. The ship captain owns his ship. He's running his ship. This captain is retiring from captaining for a corporation. There's a whole corporate structure and a ladder to climb and, you know, not, not quite, a, I don't think it's quite as strict as like military ranks and they're also a big bad. So it's, it's balancing two big bads instead of just having one monster. Which is something I think Dominique touched on in her written review. Oh, okay. Uh, Dominique Lamsey's friend of the show, been on the show in the past. Mm -hmm. I'll put a link in the show notes to her review as well. She brings up some really interesting points. Mm -hmm. And she and I chatted by Facebook Messenger about the movie because she wanted to know what I thought. It's like, well, listen to the episode, but these are my <laughs> overall thoughts. Yeah. Um, and, and I think she disagrees with me a little bit about a couple of points here and there. Okay. Uh, she's wrong, but <laughs> I'm, I'm kidding. Uh, Love you, Dominique. Yeah. 
Uh, <laughs> no, it's a good review. It's a very well-written review. I wish there were more reviews from Dominique in the world because she makes some excellent points. So I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes over at monsterkidradio.net. Mm-hmm. Please go check that out as well. Anything else you want to mention about the movie? We've been sitting here together, and I don't mind being this close to you uh, for about an hour recording. Wow. I don't know what the finished product's going to be lengthwise, but is there anything else you want to mention before we wrap up? I really appreciated how crowded the interior of the ship was, and I honestly would have to look it up, and maybe you can look it up and put it on the screen, Uh, but whoever was responsible for the set dressing and, and especially the interior uh, sets that represented the ship because I'm sure they were on sound stages and stuff with just the built out. I don't think they were really in a ship for most of this uh, for filming. They were so well done and the way things were spaced, everything from like the hammocks to the guys' boxes which were secured so that they wouldn't roll around when the ship was rocking, um, the way that lamps were secured. Uh, in one case, over a bucket so that if it fell, it would go into a bucket of water and put itself out. Things were done correctly. I had the chance while I was in high school to sail on a Spanish galleon, total wood boat, and, and half of it was rowing oars because there wasn't always enough wind to actually sail. But, you know, I got to experience what that below deck's life was really like and what a galley would really be like on a ship like that and, and how tight it was. And just that whole experience of climbing the rigging and being up in the crow's nest and and out on the bow and all of the little jobs from cleaning to cooking to braiding rope that go into that, all of that was in there and it really felt correct and it felt well done and it wasn't just the crew singing a happy song as they heave hoed. Like these guys were really working hard and I really appreciated that and I appreciated how much of that was just actually filmed the way it needed to be filmed and, and not uh, cheated. I think a lot of times in the interior of old ships like that, they clear them out so that they can get the camera around, but it shouldn't, it should feel crowded. It should feel like everybody's up in everybody's business because that's the way it really is. Yeah. There is no extra space when you're living on a ship. I only lived on one for 10 days and I, oh. You were done? I was done. I needed to be out in the woods by myself for four days after that just to recover. But it's a lot of close quarters, especially when the weather gets bad. And I can't even imagine sharing it with a vampire as well, or or it's uh, minions or sippy cup, whatever. (laughs) But (laughs) I feel bad. She did a great job in the film. I shouldn't just call her a sippy cup. But uh, yeah, no, I, I, I just really felt like the whole thing was very well put together and the attention to detail and to accuracy was really was really there and, and really deserves a lot of praise. I'd be interested to see if maybe it uh, wins some awards for those things come award season. You know, the Oscars, when they love a horror movie, they really love a horror movie, mm-hmm. but overall, I, I don't know, we'll see. I think they should put themselves forward for it. You know, the production design was fantastic mm-hmm. and, the, and the special makeup effects... Yeah. fantastic both in terms of the monster but also in terms of the victims yes yeah they, it was really good the last thing that i want to say is that yes the cane that dracula is walking around with on the streets of london looks a lot like the cane from the wolfman mm-hmm. i don't know why i i don't know um dominique 
asked me why it was there in all caps, and I didn't have an answer. <laughs> it very well could just be that the prop master thought that'd be cool. Yeah, it really could be. Universal yeah. was involved, at least in the distribution of this. Mm -hmm. uh, I understand, though, that Universal has done absolutely nothing in terms of using this film to brand anything in their parks. Feels like a loss to me. It really does, and I know they're trying to do some classic horror monster stuff, kind of, for the Universal Horror Nights mm -hmm. this year. Some of the stuff that I've seen doesn't look overly promising to me, but I'm an old school guy and I kind of get a little protective of my monsters. Sure. I feel like this movie could have benefited from a lot more promotion. I think you're right about the strikes affecting it, which is too bad. I would spend time with Clemens, the survivor, in a sequel. I don't know if it's going to happen because it's not doing so great. But listeners, despite some of the criticisms that we've had, and if mm. you've made it this far and you haven't seen the movie and we spoiled it, <laughs> there's a lot of extra cool stuff in it that we haven't talked about. Yeah. So I, I would recommend it. You know, if you are a monster kid, and, and particularly if you're a fan of Dracula, I would definitely go see this. Or if by the time you listen to this, it's available on a streaming service yes. or to rent. Yeah, I, I would definitely take advantage of that. I, I will say seeing it on the big screen was fun, and yeah. it was neat to feel like you were being jump-scared by the monster as much as uh, the, the victims were. I would hope that maybe this could get a second run. I suspect it won't run very long if people don't get out there and see it, so get out there and see it. But if it doesn't, I would hope that maybe this could get a second run at theaters like our favorite local theater, The Joy, mm -hmm. or uh, Kiggins Theater in Vancouver, and maybe get a second run around Halloween. I would be shocked if it doesn't come to something like Peacock, because Universal was involved, sure. and Universal and NBC are the same these days, so it's probably going to turn up on streaming sooner rather than later, more than likely. But if it you can be... see it on a screen, see oh, it on yeah. a big screen. It's a great Halloween flick. I, I would watch this on Halloween. I, I, I would. Yeah. It was... That well done. I, I don't know if it felt like, you know, an old school Hammer film like Stephen King recently tweeted about it, mm. but it didn't need to be. It, it felt yeah. like its own thing, and yeah. I would recommend it. Mm -hmm. I, I would. T two thumbs up more if I was allowed to. More if you were allowed to? Two thumbs up because that's all you can give it? That's it. Ow! He's all new. Gleaming fangs just for you. Dracula, A.D. 1972. Drac is back, and this time he'll really knock those bats out of your belfry. Dracula, into a new scene, beating up on the now generation with a kiss that leaves them screaming, and not for more. Dracula, A.D. 1972. Dig it before they bury him again. Plus, for all you lovers of the macabre, it's Crescendo, the highest pitch of terror you can reach. Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing star in Dracula, A.D. 1972. James Olsen and Stephanie Powers star in Crescendo, both masterworks of chilling horror and suspense from Warner Brothers. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. They have never lived before as they live now. One man has already died, and the other was never born. Both exist in a world between life and death. Both long to be human. Neither can ever be. Dracula versus Frankenstein. Ten dead men's bodies were used to fashion Dr. Frankenstein's infamous creature. 
tens of dozens of victims have kept Count Dracula alive for three centuries. Only one of these beings will survive their meeting. Dracula versus Frankenstein. Brand new thrills, brand new horror, brand new shock. Dracula versus Frankenstein, in color, rated GP. Okay, so that brings us to the end of the show. Now, I know I said during the conversation with Beth that we were going to insert a bit where I talk about the cast and crew of this particular film. I'm going to do you one better. I'm just going to leave a link in the show notes to the IMDb listing for The Last Voyage of the Demeter because there's a lot of names on here that I suspect I'm going to mispronounce. So, yeah, just follow that link to see who was in the movie and who created this incredible film that even though I had some nitpicks here and there, I still really, really enjoyed Unfortunately, the woman is not listed as Sippy Cup in the credits. Uh, she's Anna, and she's played by Aisling from... So, yeah. Again, follow the link in the show notes to that, to the listing of this movie, Does the Dog Die?, as well as Dominique Lamsey's review at her personal website. Also, since I recorded this, I did hear from Kenny, who sent me a graphic that he found, uh, I'm assuming somewhere down in Mexico, where he pointed out that the Spanish language title of this film is actually Dracula, Sea of Blood. I like that title quite a bit. It does kind of borderline on on the nose and exploitation, but I love it nonetheless, and I wonder if this movie would have done better at the box office if Dracula was in the title somewhere. Maybe Dracula's last voyage on the Demeter. The, the Dracula takes a cruise on the Demeter. The Demeter adventures of Dracula, I don't know. I just feel like Dracula should have been a little bit more front and center in the advertising, it might have gotten a bigger audience. I don't know how the movie's doing right now. When Beth and I recorded this, it was after it had opened, right after it had opened, so who knows. Anyway, thanks to Beth for being part of that conversation and for, uh, you know, coming to see a Dracula movie with me. That's pretty cool. I like that a lot. And I can't wait to share some Hammer films with her. That's going to be amazing. Also, thanks to Kenny for sending me that uh, image from the Spanish-language uh, advertising of the film. And just thanks to everybody here uh, that contributed to the show, whether it's Kenny, whether it's Mark, whether it's you, dear listener, by sharing tweets or retweeting Facebook posts. I know I got that wrong, but you know what I mean. Thank you for being part of what we do here on Monster Kid Radio, especially when I drop the ball. And here's where that big apology is coming in that I mentioned at the top of the show. So uh, this last week kind of got away from me. There's some things happening in my personal life, all good things. That required me to take some time away from a lot of what I was doing to focus on some other very important projects uh, that could impact my day job situation. Don't really want to talk too much about it just yet because I, I don't know who's listening, but I did spend a good week and a half, two weeks, if not longer, not doing any creative writing whatsoever, with very rare exception regarding a script for something so that I could work on something else, some nonfiction stuff that I had just, I struggle with, man. I'll be honest. I have a hard time with this particular kind of writing. So it just took a lot out of me. Plus I was getting ready for the big movie trivia thing that I wanted to do on the Twitch stream, the patron only trivia thing. And I let the episode get away from me. There was no episode of Monster Kid Radio last week. And I am so, so sorry. I am not interested in making this a bi-weekly show. I'm interested in keeping this going every single week, not every other week. 
So starting next week, we should be back on track. I've already got a couple of feelers out there for upcoming episodes. I do have something scheduled with Lord Bloodraw coming up in the very near future. Uh, Lord Bloodraw and I are going to talk about horror hosts and the history of horror hosting and that sort of thing. I have a few other feelers out there as well. Stay tuned. Just, again, sorry to have dropped the ball. There will be regular episodes of Monster Kid Radio coming up. I don't know if we're going to be doing any more of the monster movie trivia thing that we did on Twitch through Patreon. Bottom line is we only had three patrons show up, and I spent several hours putting that together, and I could have used that time working on the podcast or writing something else relevant to Monster Kid Radio and, and what you expect from me. So thank you for sticking around and you know, still considering yourself a listener of Monster Kid Radio, even when I skip a week inadvertently like I did. Also, some big news happened, and I'm not going to apologize about this because this is pretty darn cool. It has been confirmed that Monster Kid Radio will be giving its <laughs> presentation at Rose City Comic Con, which is happening here in Portland, Oregon, September 22nd through the 24th. On September 22nd, which is Friday, from 5 to 5.45 p.m. on the Weird Stage, which is the Oregon Ballroom, uh, numbers 203 and 204. Oh, ho, ho. We are doing a look back, a decade of dishing about monsters, Monster Kid Radio Live. Beth is going to be joining me on stage, and I've got, again, a few feelers out for some people to potentially have them join me on stage for this. This is going to be really, really cool. It's the biggest stage that I've ever been on doing something like this, and I'm pretty excited about it. I am going to keep talking about it until it happens, because I need to hide myself up, because I'm also very nervous about it. But if you're going to be in the Portland, Oregon area, please consider tracking me down at Rose City Comic Con. I would love to meet you. Again, that's happening September 22nd through the 24th at the Oregon Convention Center. That's at 777 Northeast Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard in Portland. Go to rosecitycomiccon.com to learn more about it. I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes, though, to the listing for the Monster Kid Radio podcast slash panel. That's going to be a lot of fun cannot wait for that and of course if you can't be in the area if you can't make it i'm gonna record it as well and it will become an upcoming episode of monster kid radio so stay tuned for that and stay tuned for next week for whatever it is we end up with and stay tuned to the end of the episode right before i remind you that monster kid radio is a registered service mark of monster kid radio llc all original content of monster kid radio by monster kid radio llc is licensed under a creative commons attribution on commercial no derivative 3.0 unported license you can find all of that at monsterkidradio.net, where you're going to find links to our contact information as well. You can email me at monsterkidradio at gmail.com, or you can call and leave a voicemail at 360-524-2484. You're also going to find a link to the band The Dread Tones. You're going to find a link to their song, Wake the Dead. It's from their album, The Dead Frequency. It's copyright 2023, The Dread Tones. Big thanks to them for letting me play their music here on the show. Please go check them out and support them and let them know that you heard about them here on Monster Kid Radio. My name is Sarah Kim Cook. I'll talk to everybody next week. Ciao. (laughs) 